Lord, we thank you for this morning, for the um, state of mind, the peace of mind through through worship and through fellowship and through communion. Father, we thank you for these things, and we just pray you open up our hearts and our minds this morning. We thank you for the worship. We thank you for the good weather, the warm weather, and all the small things. Lord, let us not um, overlook the small things that you do for us on a daily basis that a lot of times we just take for granted. So we thank you for all of these things. Um, we want to pray for Pastor Landon as he's on his sabbatical and for Sarah Vandervelden as she is recovering. We thank you for the blessings that you have given us, Lord, and um, just go before us this morning. Ask this in your son's name. Amen. Continuing through Paul's epistles, synthetic study, we're going through each one, taking a, a bird's eye view of each epistle that he wrote. This morning we're going to find ourselves in Philippians, the book of Philippians. The outline is simple, I don't have it in the bulletin this morning, but it's pretty much, you have Paul's prologue from 1 to 2-6, and then or verse 26, and then partnership in the gospel. Really, it's a message of exhortation. So we have Paul's prison epistles, which he wrote when he was imprisoned for his first time, I believe it, just off the top of my head here, from 60 to 62 AD. Um, Philippians is one of those, also Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So he wrote these while he was in, in prison, in jail. Keeping this in mind, we can understand and we can see the attitude of Paul as he's sitting in his cell it's nothing but praise. It's nothing but positive exhortation. So what we're going to see this morning, and what we've been seeing all the way through these, especially these are prison epistles, yet last week we did Ephesians, is in spite of his circumstances, which if he wanted to, he could have self-loathed. He could have had self-pity. He could have been, God, you have called me to this ministry, and yet here I am in a jail cell. Why am I serving you? He could easily have done that, but he doesn't. And the refreshment that comes out of his epistles while he's sitting in the cell is a lesson for all of us because if he's willing to do this, if Paul's willing to do this, and we're going to see here in a little bit the, um, what's known as the kenosis or the emptying of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, what he went through to the extent of giving himself, then we really don't have a basis for self-pity or self-loathing when we're in Christ. We're going to take a look at that this morning. So the primary purpose of the epistle to the Philippians is reassurance and pastoral care. It's proper attitude and a proper state of mind. Whatever circumstances we are walking into or whatever circumstances we are coming out of, our state of mind stays the same. It doesn't change. And our state of mind will dictate our attitude no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. This is the Christian position. Easy concept to understand difficult to apply. It takes a lifetime to actually learn this, to develop this, to grow in this. The content of the Philippian um, epistle, positive and personal. It's to live joyfully in the midst of trying circumstances. It's experiencing our present victory over our current circumstances and the future reward for all believers who are persevering through this. This is accomplished by two ways. It's conforming to the mind of Christ and allowing Jesus to rule in every aspect of our life. So the date of the letter is between 60 to 62 AD. So if we want to turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 21. What we're going to see, and the foundation that's going to be laid, is what do we live for? What is the meaning of life? What motivates us each and every day? 
If I asked you a question as to why people join cults, you guys remember the Jim Jones cult, Waco, Texas, the Heaven's Gate cult back in 1997 where 39 people drank the Kool-Aid. I don't, I don't remember all the details. I just remember it was my sophomore year in high school. The internet was brand new back then and you couldn't get on the website to look them up because it was jammed. I just remember that. I couldn't get the information on them. 39 people lost their lives in that one. Jim Jones, 918. So I was going to ask you, why do people do this? You know, people sit back and like, how can people, you know, and why would people, why would somebody drink the Kool-Aid? Why would they do that? Meaning, acceptance, and identity. Well, three reasons why. Meaning, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Acceptance from other individuals. Identity, who am I? All three of these are at the core of who we are. And as society continues to unravel as it is, we're starting to see the main cause. We're seeing the symptoms of it. Like yesterday, um, I was made aware of a news article of a situation here that happened in Appleton over on Newberry with a police shootout. A 23-year-old kid got caught shoplifting and it ended up in a shootout and he ended up losing his life. A police officer was shot and I think some, some bystanders were, innocent bystanders were hurt in this as well. I would assume if you were to talk to that 23-year-old kid an hour before he decided to do all of this and if you were to sit down with him and listen to him and get past the exterior of whatever he's trying to show and get to the heart of the issue, it comes down to meaning, acceptance, and identity. And this really can drive somebody completely off the wall if we do not have a foundation in these things. If you're not accepted, if you don't understand why we're here, if life has no meaning, our identity, what is it? And if we're constantly looking for these and searching for these and grasping for it, this is why people turn to cults because they find somebody who accepts them. They find meaning, they find community, even though it's a very scary basis of doctrine in which they subject themselves to, people do this. So looking at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul gives the meaning of the Christian life here. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is making a contrast here between life and death. The meaning of life for the Christian is to live for Christ, Christ-centered. So God is the centerpiece of this whole picture. The benefit of death for the believer is to inherit eternal life, resulting in the believer being immediately in the presence of Christ. So if we're going to take an x-ray of our hearts this morning, and we can't do this, now I'm talking now about the physical, I'm talking about our soul and our spirit. What is at the center of our hearts, of our souls? Is it Christ? Or if we were to take an x-ray, would it be anything else? Have we replaced Christ with an idol? Is there something that has replaced God in our hearts and that's what we're going after? The second we do that, the whole meaning of life changes. What we are living for changes. What we consume ourselves with changes. What we spend our time doing changes. And the Christian, who should be living in verse 21, to me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. There's, I mean, it's positive both ways. We go through difficult times, as we're going to see here in a minute, but every day should be positive. Every day has meaning. Every day has value. We're accepted by God. We have a fellowship of believers. Our identity is in Christ. Any way we turn, life or death, we have meaning. We have acceptance. We have an answer to these things. And what we're seeing is the world outside of Christ, the world away from God, does not have a sufficient base or a sufficient answer for these, and we see why the world is unraveling. Look at verse 22. It says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
and I do not know which to choose. So as long as the Christian is walking in the Spirit, every action they do has value. Everything you do is what Paul says here in verse 22, fruitful labor. An example of this, um, Dr. Christopher Cohn, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Bible professors, he's down in California right now, Um, he had a commencement address for Southern California Seminary, so the graduates, on May 14th. So these are the the students who've graduated from seminary, and he's giving the commencement speech here, and this is what he says. He says, go from this moment and do small things. He says, you see, small isn't insignificant to God, small matters. We are in a world and a culture of marketing where bigger, better, faster, stronger, more advanced. Every single day, that's all we see. And 10 years from now, we look back on the technology we thought was great and we laugh at ourselves and we continue this cycle. So in our mind, we're constantly being marketed for new, new, more, more. And as we get into the culture and this seeps into our mind, we start to think this is the way we should be living our Christian life, bigger, more. So value is found in material, value is found in abundance, value is found in reputation and being known. So if we're not finding significance in the big picture, we neglect the small things when the Christian position is the exact opposite. It's a moment-by-moment relationship with the Lord in his will, doing what he wants when nobody else is looking, and the only person keeping score is God. The small things that nobody sees you do the small things that you'll never get a pat on the back for, the small things that you'll never be encouraged for doing are the things that God sees and the things that God inventories. So when we stand before him when we die, we will receive eternal rewards for every small thing that we do. And it's basically just day-to-day living in the spirit with our families, with our friends, taking care of the things that God has immediately put in front of us each day. What ends up happening is we think of those things as small and insignificant and we look beyond So we take Christ out of the center of our heart and we put anything material in our heart or whatever our goal is or whatever it is that replaces this and we look beyond the small things, all of a sudden meaning starts to lose resolution. We're not achieving our goals. We haven't hit the financial mark. We haven't hit the um, promotion at work. Or three other people who I went to school with are earning more than I am and all of a sudden we start to backpedal and we start to look at ourselves as small and insignificant, meaning, value, acceptance, those type of things begin to fade. But as we see here now in verse 23, Paul says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What is he saying? Every believer in Christ will die at the exact moment that Christ has already determined. That's why the Psalms teach us to number our days so we can apply our hearts to wisdom. So if we're still alive, what does that mean? This means God still has work for us to do. We have purpose here while on earth and eternal joy in death. So that pretty much covers where we're going to be for the next, (laughs) however we're long here on earth and for wherever we are in eternity, that encompasses everything. God has meaning, God has purpose for us here now. And the moment he has determined to take us to be home with him, we enter into eternal joy. So this is the mindset we're starting to see, the Christian mindset. We enter into everyday practical living with this mindset. Now look at verse 25. Convinced of this, this being our foundation for why we get up in the morning and do what we do. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith 
so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The reason why the Christian should have a smile on their face is not because they're trying to show the world that they're happy, but they're hurting inside. Or not to try to present themselves in such a way where people think and see you in such a manner, but inside you're hurting, but it should be the other way around. From the core of who we are, we should have joy in the Lord and confidence in the Lord and trust in the Lord, knowing that while we're here, we're serving him, and when we die, we're with him. That's where our joy and that's where our power and that's where our peace comes from. Amidst the trying circumstances, we can have this confidence and this peace. The motivation for Christian conduct, true meaning for life and death in Christ. Small example of this, Friday afternoon, people are starting to leave work. What kind of attitude are people in on Fridays at work? <laughs> people you normally don't get along with, hey, how are you doing? Have you, you know, Monday morning, you come back to work, especially if the Packers lose, right? Monday morning, you come back to work. How are people's attitudes? Oh, I've got this week to go. You know, they don't have any, it's just the circumstances you're in dictate our attitudes. Friday afternoon, we're ready to go for the weekend. Monday morning, oh, we got five more work days ahead of us. And our attitudes flux, they change on, based upon the circumstances that we're in. But this isn't the Christian position. Paul says, standing firm, no doubting the meaning of the value of life. Striving together, joined together, strength in numbers, the Christian cannot do this alone. We're not called to be, you know, lone rangers. We're called to be here in fellowship with one another, edifying each other and building ourselves up. Verse 28, he says, In no way being alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. The word alarmed, peturo in the Greek, means intimidated or frightened. It's kind of like the way it's used is if a horse gets spooked and it jumps up and starts running. We're not to do that. Afraid of who? Paul's speaking of here, and now Paul has serious concerns when he's writing this letter. Afraid of enemies causing harm and persecution. Harm or persecution is only to be expected, and this is what Paul's saying here in, during the time that he was preaching the gospel. Verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to what? Suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So what we're seeing here is our suffering should never cause us to doubt the meaning of life or the value that we have in Christ. So we have this foundation, we have this understanding, we have this theological truth. So now the question is then, if we're going to break this down and be real about this, why do we see so many Christians today struggling with meaning and value and acceptance? You can talk to them. They have the head knowledge of what the Bible says. But then when you're, you're talking to them or you're sitting down with them and they're opening up to you, their heart isn't in it. They, they, they know what the Bible says, but their heart isn't in it and they're struggling with these issues. Why is this? And we've been seeing this. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 now. Verses 5 through 8, I think might be, I don't like to say this often, but my favorite um, couple passages in the Bible. I have spent literally days, if not countless hours, looking at these 5 through 11. It's what's known as the Carmen Christi or the kenosis. There is a lot of theological truth between verses 5 and 11, especially when you look them up in the original language. Because last week I talked to you about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and I kind of 
got excited and started stuttering about what you find in the Greek. Well, what you find in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in the Greek is it takes, you can take weeks on this study. We're not going to go into it in that kind of detail. But look at verse 5 here. Paul says, have this attitude. It's a command. It's an imperative. He's commanding us to do this. Have this attitude. Phronao in the Greek, mind or way of thinking. In yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the attitude and mind, what is Paul referring to? And it's always important when we read passages in the Bible to understand the context in which they're being written in. Why is Paul writing this? Go back to verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So I asked you, the Christian who has the head knowledge, but the heart isn't there. They're not walking. They're depressed. They're having a hard time finding value and meaning in what they're doing in life, and they're struggling with this. Why is that? Because what we end up doing is instead of looking outward towards loving other individuals and expressing the love of Christ, we look inward and we're constantly looking towards ourselves, our own needs our own wants, our own ambitions, our own desires, our own goals, and we become self-absorbed. We have replaced Christ in our heart with an idol, and we're trying to find fulfillment in that idol, which we never will. So the secret, it's not even a secret, but I use that term uh, metaphorically, the secret of the Christian walk and peace and love in Christ is to be God-centered first and then others-centered rather than self-centered. Modern psychology teaches today that the, man, the heart, man's heart is naturally good, self-esteem, love yourself, live for self-fulfillment. It's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It's to deny yourself. It's to um, rid yourself. It's to be God-centered and other people-centered. Go back to verse 6 now of chapter 2. Talking about what Jesus has done. Who? Talking about Christ. Although he existed... In the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What is this saying? In eternity past, from our perspective, Jesus continuously, eternally, living in the very nature of God. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this is the Trinity. In eternity past, from our perspective, continuously existing. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, continuously existing in the very nature of God, did not think that this equality he had with God, and he always has with God, he did not think that was something to be hung, clung to. It was already his. He didn't desire to hold on to it, but he did what? Verse 7, he emptied himself. The word in Greek is ekonosin. He set aside his personal use, uses of his divine attributes Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. So, this is where we get the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity took on a human nature and he was born in Bethlehem. This is the incarnation. He took on a human form. Emptied himself. Set aside his personal use of his divine attributes. Coming down from where he was in his eternal relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Taking on a human nature and becoming just like us. Calls him a bondservant here, but the word in Greek is doulos, which means slave. A slave has no rights of his own. 
So we're seeing Jesus, the second person, the creator, God, the second person, God, the son, our creator, he created us, becoming a human being. Why did he do this? Verse 8, being found in an appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus did two things. He emptied himself and he humbled himself and he was obedient to what the Father had instructed him to do in function. Just because Jesus was obedient to the Father doesn't mean that he's less equal than the Father. He just took on a different function and a different role. He became obedient to death, to the death of the cross. So if God the second person, referring to Jesus, humbles himself, empties himself, is 100% obedient to what the Father says, and then turn around, turns around, takes on a human nature, and dies on the cross so we can have eternal joy with him. Where does that leave us in our walk with him? Do we have any right to say, no, God, I'm going to live life the way I want to? Do we have any right to say, Jesus, I'm going to take you out of my heart and replace you with an idol and follow my own self-fulfilling lifestyle? No. Jesus gave us the perfect example. And if we want spiritual peace, and if we want to be truly content in this life, what we're going to do is follow the example of Christ. Do exactly what Jesus did. The first greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we are not in line with what God has prescribed for us and how he has designed us to live, we are not going to have true meaning or true identity or feel truly accepted with the Lord. We're always going to be off on our own path somewhere trying to find self-fulfillment in anything else but Christ. Now look at chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to start to see Paul's spiritual resume. Paul was the poster child for... Self-achievement, self-success. If he climbed to the very highest peak of the mountain in Judaism, and he's going to show us this here. He's going to show that in every single way, his resume was better than everybody else. And in a sense, if he wanted to get hired on anywhere, or if he wanted to be you know, the poster child for Judaism, he was it. So if you think you're going to find self-fulfillment in anything material in this world, or meaning, or value, in anything in the world, Paul's going to lay this out here. Look at verse 5. What does he say? Circumcised on the eighth day, Jewish at birth, from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, a legalistic Pharisee. Verse 6. Very zealous, persecutor of the church, blameless according to the law. So what we're seeing here, Paul was the elite of the elite as far as Judaism is concerned. Now he has the mind of Christ. You remember his conversion on the road to Damascus. Got knocked off of his horse. God knocked some sense into him, right? He started to see now. He was born again. The Lord had got into his heart, opened up his heart, spiritually illumined him, and now he can start to see things that he could not see leaving the, leading, um, leading the legalistic road. Now he has the relationship with Christ. As a result, verse 7. Notice how Paul resper, um, refers to his spiritual achievements. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So that spiritual resume that he had put together in all of his life's ambitions and all of his life's achievements are counted as things. No value. Yet he did, he had to come to learn this on the Damascus Road. They gave him a sense of false hope. They gave him a sense of false security. He thought if he were to die at that moment, he was going to stand before God, pull out that resume and say, look God, I did this, 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 this. Let me into your kingdom completely opposite of what Jesus had taught. This was coming from pride. This was coming from self. What Jesus has ordained for us to do is to empty 
ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that achievements are bad. I'm not saying goals are bad. I'm not saying education's bad. I'm not saying promotions are bad. Those are all good things. The Lord can bless us in those things. But if that becomes the centerpiece of who we are and who we identify ourselves as, that has become an idol and Christ has been replaced with our own selfish ambitions. Matthew 16, you don't have to turn here. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. I'm going to read verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. Just like we read in the Kenosis in verses 5 through 8 of Philippians. To deny yourself, what does that mean? It means to renounce yourself, to leave self behind, to disregard yourself, to give up all right to yourself. Once and for all, say no to yourself. God is in charge. We are a slave. The Bible says we're slaves to righteousness now. We used to be slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. We've been bought with a price. Every morning we wake up, we say, God, what would you have me to do? And every time we do that, we desire to do what the Lord wants us to do because he supernaturally puts that desire into our hearts. It's a desire that the natural man does not have. But if we have that relationship with Christ, if we have our prayer life with Christ and our fellowship and our Bible study and we're just walking in the Spirit, these are the desires he plants in our hearts for us to do. The only other occurrence of this verb that we see here in Matthew 16, 24 is used in Peter's denial when he denied Jesus. So we are to deny ourselves to our own selfish ambitions, just like Peter denied Christ when um, the little girl came up to him. Take up the cross. As we already know, the cross was an instrument of execution by the Romans. It was looked upon as particularly painful. It was reserved for slave and foreigners. The Christian is to identify himself as such, not in a degrading sense, but out of humility, out of emptying ourselves. We take the same path that Jesus took for us. The condemned man was required to carry his cross or the cross beam to the place of execution. Now notice, these things that are coming, that persecution that comes the way of the Christian, or the hard times or the things we struggle with as a believer, we excel in those areas, just like Paul is excelling in this area right now, sitting in a prison cell, penning this letter. When we go through hard times with the mind of Christ, our circumstances don't dictate to us the type of day we're going to have. We have already determined in our mind, in the mind of Christ, through the supernatural love poured out in the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that we are going to live the life of Christ, the humble life, the joy, peace. We're going to live for Christ. The attitude's already there in the Lord. Jesus saying, follow me, follow in my steps, follow in my footsteps, walk in my footsteps. For verse 25, it says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, I'm still reading out of Matthew here. For what profit does it of a man who gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul or his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? So this is what Jesus was laying out in Matthew chapter 16. This is what Jesus laid out in the example of the incarnation, taking on human nature and dying on the cross. This is the exact same lifestyle that we're commanded to follow. So going back to Philippians now, chapter 3, verse 8. Paul's perspective on self-denial. He says, More than that, I count all things to be loss." in the view of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That life of self-achievement, if we think we're going to find fulfillment in that anywhere, 
what Paul is saying is he has set that aside and he is 100% at the mercy of Christ to do what he wants to do. Notice that word rubbish. It says, count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish, the word in the Greek is skubalon. So literally, it's translated poop. <laughs> That's the literal word. But when the translators went through it, they're like, ah, let's just say rubbish because it can mean garbage. But literally what Paul was saying is, is his spiritual resume is poop. I mean, that's literally what he's saying here. It's not, it doesn't come out translated wise, but in the Greek, that's what it says. And this is the attitude he has towards his past achievements. Philippians, uh, go to verse 13. It says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid a hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. So I have a joke for you guys this morning. How many Chicago Bears fans does it take to screw in a light bulb? All of them. One to change the light bulb, and all the other ones to sit around and talk about how good the old one used to be. Like the 85 Bears. That was 31 years ago now, guys. If you're a Bears fan, let it go, right? Forgetting the things of the past looking for the things of the future. So what Paul is saying here is whatever your accomplishments were in the past, whatever you think you have done to earn God's favor or to earn God's grace, count it as loss, live each day for its fullest potential. Also, this works in reverse. If we have a history and if we have a past of negative things, let's say, and we look to our past to define who we are today, Rather than identifying ourselves with Christ, being born again, being forgiven, being justified in his presence, but we look to the past and we see all the negative things that we used to do and we think that we're of no value, or we're of no hope, but there's not anything we can do that's going to please God because he's already angry with us. It works both ways. Forgetting the things of the past, whether they were achievements or whether they were failures, and it's pressing on towards the future. The past is the past, and what Paul is saying here is, Look forward to the things of the future. Don't have the attitude of, I have arrived. I have accomplished. I have reached the top of the mountain. Therefore, I can sit here and rest here because God is you know, pleased with what I have done. But at the same time, don't turn around and think, well, I've done this, 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 and this in the past. There's no hope for me in the future. Because Paul, what was he doing before he became a Christian on Damascus Road? He was persecuting the church, the very church that he is now building in the power of Christ. So we can see the flip of Paul in his life. We can look back at the past failures of the disciples. And on Acts chapter 2, Peter had denied Jesus three times, went away, now in Acts chapter 2, we see him stand up and give one of the boldest sermons in the Bible. So God can take somebody who's broken and use them. But if we allow our past successes and our past achievements to dictate what we're going to do tomorrow, that can hinder us from more blessings or more things that the Lord would have us do in the future. Go to chapter 4 in Philippians, look at verse 6. How are we to live with this mind of Christ? How do we practically apply ourselves in this setting? It says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So be anxious for nothing. It's an imperative. It's a command. Anxious. The word in Greek is merimnao. Having anxiety, being anxious, being unduly concerned. He says, don't be that way for anything. So hard times come. What do we start to do? We become worried. We start planning, we start scheming, we start stressing. People can develop ulcers, they can get into serious states of depression. You can start to lose sleep. 
Paul's saying, don't do this. He's saying what? Let your requests be made known to God. So everything that is coming our way, we just hand it right over to the Lord and say, here it is, God. This has come my way. I'm stressed over this. This is worrying me. I'm getting worried sick. What Paul is commanding us to do is not to develop a mindset of anxiety. Put on the mind of Christ. Pass it right over to the Lord and allow God to deal with it. This is what he's commanding us to do. Prayer needs to replace worry. Another thing that's easy to understand but very difficult to do. Because when tough times come, that's when we kind of, in a lot of ways, set God aside and think we have to get our hands on the problem. Otherwise, it's not going to get fixed. And that's the exact opposite of what Paul is teaching here. Look at verse 11, chapter 4. This kind of sums up what we're saying here in Philippians. It says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So what he's saying here in verse 11, not that I speak from want, meaning self-ambition, for I have learned, okay, this didn't come natural to Paul either, it's a process, I have learned to be content, doesn't come naturally, in whatever circumstances I'm in. So our position in Christ takes precedent over our present circumstances. Our position of where we are as a believer having the mind of Christ, will determine what we do on a day-to-day basis. Our circumstances don't dictate to us what we're going to do or how we're going to believe or how we're going to behave. But the mind of Christ will determine whatever circumstances that we walk into. I'm going to give you an example here um, of St. Patrick. He existed, he lived in the uh, 4th century. One of the most misrepresented figures in church history, St. Patrick was neither Irish or Roman Catholic, but today most people think he was both. He was actually British. He was born in Britain. Patrick was born in a Christian family in a Roman province of Britain around 389. His family was very devout and religious. Patrick grew up in a very affluent, wealthy, upper-class, middle-upper-class home. So he never lacked anything as a, as a young boy and as a teenager. But as a young boy and as a teenager, Patrick hated religion and made fun of it quite often. You know, the, the, the um, pastors or the priests would do what they do in church and behind their back, you know, he would continuously mock them. He later admitted in life that he was an atheist as a youth. So all of his circumstances and every need that was, he needed was met. He was in a very affluent home, but yet his back was towards God. When he was in his mid-teens, right around the age 15, his town near the west coast of Britain was invaded by a band of Irish plunders. Many of the boys, including Patrick, were kidnapped and sold as slaves in Ireland. So his home was invaded. He was kidnapped. The kidnappers or the pirates or whoever they were took him from Britain over to Ireland, and he was sold as a slave. Patrick was sold to a farmer in Ireland where for the next six years he would serve as a pig herder, so herding pigs. So take a look at the scenario, the circumstances. Overnight, upper middle class home, had everything made. Now he's a slave herding pigs in Ireland in a very moment's time. Patrick testifies that he did not know the true God at the time of his captivity. So like he was sitting in church as an atheist, mocking God, mocking everything. That's what he was doing. He did not know God during that time. But now, during the years of his slavery, he began reflecting on his spiritual condition and his life changed. And this is what he says in, his, um, in the history here. This is a quote from him. The Lord opened the understanding of my belief that 
Late as it was, I might remember my faults and turn to the Lord, my God, with all my heart. And he had regard to my low estate, and he pitied my youth and ignorance, and kept guard over me even before I knew him, and before I wisdom to distinguish good and evil. And he strengthened and comforted me as a father does his son. So he was completely broken during these six years of slavery as he was herding pigs. For six years, serving as a slave in a foreign country, God broke Patrick down to the point of repentance. He says, God used this time to shape old me into something better. He made me into what I am now, someone very different from who I once was, someone who can care about others and work to help them. Before I was a slave, I didn't even care about myself. And this is what we're seeing in today's culture. We have so much self, so much material, an abundance of um, a simplistic lifestyle of where we can just coast through life. Our needs are met, but yet value and meaning and acceptance and identity are gone. It's like we've replaced one for the other. This is what Patrick's state of mind was before he was sold into slavery. Now when times got tough, now when he was under that trial, God had broken him to the point of repentance. Now he became other-centered rather than self-centered because he developed his relationship with the Lord. And this is what we're seeing here. So what happened after six years, this is interesting, is Patrick was able to escape. He escaped his slave owner, walked 120 miles through Ireland, found a coast, found a ship, got back over to Britain, and was able to walk home. This is something that is completely unheard of in ancient times, of escaping your slave owner and being able to go back home to where you were. A very interesting thing, a miracle indeed. His family was absolutely overwhelmed to see him. He was kidnapped when he was 15. He was brought back home at age 21. Kidnapped as a spoiled 15-year-old pampered kid, coming back as a 21-year-old, rustic, tough, hands rough from, you know, hurting the sheep. Completely different person. Left as an unbeliever, as an atheist, came back as a believer. So it was like, great, you're home. Get back into the family business. Start your process. We can start over again. As Patrick was adjusting back to his home life, God had placed a huge burden on Patrick's heart. And guess what that was? to go back to Ireland as a missionary, to go back to the very country that he just escaped as a slave. Right? Paul, or Patrick now has the mind of Christ. He is a slave to righteousness. God, what would you have me do? His meaning, his value, his acceptance, his identity was in what God would have him to do, who God was. He already has that taken care of. Now the circumstances, he just goes and does what the Lord's asked him to do. So as a result, Patrick went back to the country he was formerly a slave of, 30 years he spent in Ireland, planted 200, church, 200 churches, and about 100,000 Irishmen converting from paganism to Christianity. So about 100,000 individuals saved in Ireland. 30-year ministry, he faced 12 life-threatening situations, including a kidnapping and a two-week captivity. All of this was accomplished because Patrick decided every moment to live for Christ he gave no thought to his own necessities, no thought to his own life as far as Christ was concerned. Whatever God determined him to do, he did. He didn't self-loathe. He didn't self-pity. Meaning, acceptance, identity were in Christ. He was able to accomplish exactly everything God wanted him to do. Patrick was completely content with what God had provided. He was not worried. He did not become anxious. He did not struggle. Notice what he's going into. Patrick went to Ireland into a, um, a country of paganism, which... 
pagan practices at the time. Some of them were even um, human sacrifice. I mean, some very dark stuff uh, Patrick went into. But he didn't, it, it didn't concern him. It's not like we live this life now recklessly. It's not like we don't live a life, we don't save, we don't save for retirement, we don't plan. We're called to be financially responsible. We're called to plan for the future. We're called to be wise stewards of our money. We're called to raise our family the exact way God wants us to do. But once we take Christ out and we place anything material in our hearts, value, meaning, identity, we start to lose that in Christ and we start to drift away from the Lord. And the reason our society is not finding meaning and value today is because we've abandoned God, we've abandoned our Creator, and we have taken our own path and chosen to go our own way. So this is pretty much the summary, the synthetic study of Philippians, is having that mind of Christ, the mind of Jesus. What did Jesus do for us? The second person in human nature, dying on the cross for our sins. Same kind of mindset. Let's pray, we'll finish. Lord, we thank you for all of the works that we can see from past saints like St. Patrick, like Paul, and Lord, how you can take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and mold us and conform us into your image to give us everlasting peace, everlasting joy, Lord, whether we're alive or we're dead, we're living for you or we're in your presence. So Lord, either way we turn, we have that mind of Christ that enters into any circumstance or any scenario. Living that life that you have ordained for us to live. We thank you, Lord, for these things, for your spirit, for your grace, for taking on a human nature, Lord, and doing what you did to redeem us. Now, out of gratitude, Lord, we pray we turn around and we live that same type of life back to you out of gratitude for what you've given us. Lord, we want to lift up the requests of everybody here this morning. Lord, you know what they are. We pray for your blessings and just go before us this week, Lord, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.